Thank you so very, very much. And thank you, First Baptist, for the invitation to be here this day. This is quite an honor for me. Uh, we should have had this 20th anniversary about 10 years ago before my body gave out and I had to have a cane to get around. Uh, I only use the cane because I'm not able uh, <laughs> to locomote myself, so uh, that's, that's why the cane is here. Uh, it, it really is a great joy for me to be here. Um, two years ago, I had to cancel all engagements I had on the calendar for several years in advance because of some physical problems. And uh, when this invitation came, it was the one thing I said, okay, we can do that. And so the Lord has got me here today, and I am just delighted to be here. Thank you again for the invitation. Oh, there you all are. Now I can see you. You got up this morning, you combed your hair, you brushed your tooth. You did all the things necessary for this incredible day today. If you have a Bible and would like to follow along, I'm going to look into a passage in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. And I want to talk about a man whose name you may never have heard of before. But he tells me a lot about the way you and I as Christians should operate our lives. And most especially, he tells me a lot about how your pastor and Lori have operated theirs. I moved to Nebraska in 1990. They asked me the day I arrived, are you a Cornhusker fan? I didn't know what a Cornhusker fan was. But I found out quickly because on Friday before a game day in Nebraska, if you don't wear red and you walk into a bank, they may not serve you. You go to a restaurant, they'll just throw you right out. I mean, the people are nuts. They're crazy. Now, you know, we've had some bad years, uh, <laughs> last few years, but I moved there in 1990, and, and Nebraska played for the national championship in 95, 96, 97, 94, 95, 96, 97, and they won three out of those four years, and I thought it was always going to be that way. Our coach in those days was Tom Osborne. There is a story about Tom Osborne that... Um, Probably is a spurious story, but let me tell it anyway. Osborne had a terrific career as coach at Nebraska, and as the story goes, he came out one day and he, he looked at the great crowd, and Nebraska's had like, I don't know, 378 consecutive home sellout games. It goes back to 1962. It's just, it's otherworldly. He looked at the crowd and he saw an empty seat way up there in the upper deck. And that bothered him. So he made a point to go out into the crowd to investigate why there was an empty seat. And when he got there, he saw an elderly woman dressed in black sitting next to that empty seat. And he said to her, do you know whose seat this is? And the woman 
according to the story at least, the woman says, yes, it's my husband's seat, but he died. Well, the coach said, I'm sorry, but why didn't you invite a relative or a friend to come along and, and join you? She said, oh, they're all at the funeral. <laughs> now, <laughs> that's a story about commitment, you know? I want to talk to you about commitment today. There is a loss of commitment in our society right now, a, a terrible loss. And I really didn't appreciate this loss until I was in New York City some years ago. And this lack of commitment hits everything. There's a lack of commitment to church, you know? Uh, people don't join church anymore, they attend. They don't want to get tied down to a church. There's a lack of commitment in marriage. We see it today, especially among younger generations, that marriage is not on their timetable. Uh, live together, sure. Try it out, fine. If you don't like it, move on. No commitment. But one day in New York City, I was walking down the street past a jewelry store. And I saw a sign in the window of this jewelry store that taught me a lot about the lack of commitment today because the sign said, wedding rings for rent. And I thought, what is wrong with our society that it can't muster any commitment to anything? I think your pastor demonstrates for these 20 years, a commitment to you, to this church. Now, he graduated from Davis College in 1982. I came in 1980, so our time overlapped just a few years. I asked him this morning uh, what classes he had of mine, and homiletics came to our minds almost immediately. That's how to preach a sermon. So, to you here in Johnson City, who hear him preach a sermon every Sunday morning, I say, you're welcome. <laughs> Nearly five decades ago now, George Barna, whose parents, by the way, live in Vestal. I found that out when Barna and I did a book together some years ago. Five decades ago, he wrote a book called The Frog in the Kettle, and it's Subtitle was, What Christians Need to Know About Life in the Year 2000. He was looking ahead to the year 2000. Now, we're well beyond that now. I want to quote what he said. Commitment is viewed negatively because it limits our ability to feel independent and free, to experience new things, to change our minds on the spur of the moment and to focus upon self-gratification rather than helping others, end quote. Well, that may be true in our society today, but it wasn't true in a Roman cell 2,000 years ago. Because Paul was in prison, and a fellow by the name of Onesiphorus came to visit him. Let me read to you from 2 Timothy Chapter 1, let's begin at verse 15. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, 
For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know well all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Now, we don't know much about Onesiphorus. In fact, everything we know is in this passage. He's only mentioned here and again in the final chapter of 2 Timothy. But here's what I learn about Onesiphorus from these short verses that we've just read. This man, Onesiphorus, although we know so very little about him, this man shows what true commitment is like. I want my life to look like this man. And I want you to see the correspondence between this man's life and ministry and your pastor's life and ministry. Because just as Onesiphorus was a gift from God to Paul, your pastor has been God's gift to you. Notice in verse 16, first of all, he says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me. Now, it doesn't say to Onesiphorus, it says to the household of Onesiphorus, his family. Because likely at this point, Onesiphorus was gone. He was already dead. He had served Paul. Paul is now writing his very last letter that we know of. And he writes it to Timothy and is remembering what this man Onesiphorus did. And he says, first of all, he often refreshed me. I don't know what it means that he refreshed Paul. Maybe he just brought some water to him. Maybe he prayed with him. Maybe he brought letters to him. Maybe he just sat with him in, in prison. I don't know what it means. All I know is he did it often. <laughs> he was consistent in doing it. True commitment demands consistency. Uh, one of the great pleasures of being on the radio for 23 years was that I, I made uh, friendships with a lot of people that I never met. Because, you know, in radio, they hear you, they picture what you should look like, and you never do. And they make friendships with you. And, and there's one couple, their names were Eugene and Eugenia Blankenship. Now, how often is it that a guy named Eugene finds a wife whose name is Eugenia? But these two lived in Yukon, Oklahoma, and every birthday I had during those 23 years, I got a birthday card from Eugene and Eugenia. I don't even know how they knew my birthday. And every anniversary Linda and I had, we got an anniversary card. To this day, I have never met face-to-face -face Eugene and Eugenia Blankenship. But you know what I appreciate about them? Their consistency. They did it all the time. And here, Onesiphorus is a man who refreshed Paul consistently. Your pastor's been here 20 years. That's pretty remarkable in itself. But it shows the consistency that's necessary to have an in-depth, ongoing ministry in your presence. He's God's gift to you. True commitment demands consistency. But the next verse also tells us, verse 17, 
that when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me. He sought me out. In other words, Paul didn't write a letter to Ephesus, to Onesiphorus, and say, please, Onesiphorus, come and, um, and be with me. Help me out here. No. This man, Onesiphorus, took it upon himself to go to Rome and refresh the Apostle Paul. He sought Paul out. And that means true con- commitment also demands initiative. Uh, opportunity in ministry doesn't come to you, friends. Opportunity in ministry only is yours when you go after it. Now, there are, I'm sure, are lots of places in this church that could use your help today. But they'll never get it until you go after it. It won't come to you. Like this man, Onesiphorus. He came to Paul because he initiated the contact with the Apostle Paul. Now, just remember this. If the object is worthy, if the cause is worthy, if the ministry is worthy, it will be worthy whether you're committed to it or not. The initiative is on your part, not the ministry's part. This church is worthy of your support. It's worthy of your commitment to it in ministry. But we'll only see that if you take the initiative like Onesiphorus did for the Apostle Paul. Now, as you have heard, I, <laughs> I have spent three decades on and off living in Johnson City. I came here as a student in 1962, before most of you were born. I came back as a professor in 1970, still before many of you were born. And then I came back in 1980 through 1990 as the president of the college because nobody else would take the job. And I just, I got to learn what commitment was from the staff and the faculty at Davis College. We had a staff member, some of you may remember him, his name was Daniel Kahn. Mr. Kahn, he was, he was head of maintenance and anything else that needed done. And Mr. Kahn was old school, he was of the greatest generation, right? You give Mr. Kahn some bailing wire and duct tape and he can fix anything, and did. We had an old boiler in the largest building there on campus and it would break down about every Tuesday. And I'd send Mr. Kahn in to take a look at it, and I have no idea what he did, but in a couple of hours it was working again for all the years I was there at the college. Dan Kahn was, to me, the epitome of initiative and commitment. One time I was in Europe, coming back from Europe, and I was at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport. And if you've been to Schiphol, you know that it was the first airport that actually had a mall in the airport. So people would go there just to shop. They weren't flying anywhere. They'd just they'd go there to shop. And, and, and one time I was on my way to the gate, and there was a little stand there where they were selling tulip bulbs. And it was just the right time to plant tulips early in the spring. 
And uh, they had five-pound bags of tulip bulbs. Now, my luggage was checked. I had, you know, no way to really carry them. But I bought two, two bags. So I, now I have 10 pounds of tulip bulbs I'm carrying on the plane. When I got home here to Johnson City, to the campus on Riverside Drive, I uh, found Mr. Kahn and I said, Mr. Kahn, I have two five-pound bags of tulip bulbs here. Here's what I want you to do. My wife loves tulips, and we lived in a house on campus, the president's house, and uh, I said, I want you to plant one bag around our house for my wife. The other bag is for you. You plant these wherever you want to plant them. So he did. He planted both bags around my house. And I said, no, 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 you misunderstood. One bag around my house, the other bag wherever you want to plant them. He said, I did. This is where I wanted to plant them. Well, one middle of the night, several weeks later, I was awakened about 3 o'clock in the morning with the sound of water flowing through our pipes in the house. And I did what any good husband would do. I awakened my wife, and I said to her, Are you awake? She said, I am now. Do you hear that water running through pipes? I do now. So we both got up trying to find out where the water was running. And it was uh, spring, so we had the windows open in the house and went to each window, listened through the screen, and couldn't find it, except I got to one window and I could hear some rustling out there and water. So I opened the screen, I put my head out, and there is Daniel Kahn watering our tulips. It's three o'clock in the morning. I said, Mr. Kahn, can't you sleep? Yeah, I can sleep. Why are you watering the tulips at 3 o'clock in the morning? This is what he said. Because it says on the bag that these tulips are best watered in the middle of the night. Now, I'm pretty sure they meant by a sprinkler system, you know. But not to Mr. Kahn. He took the initiative to be committed to the campus and my wife and me to water these tulips in the middle of the night. Now, I see this in Onesiphorus. First of all, I see that true commitment here demands consistency. He sought Paul out and often refreshed him. Secondly, verse 17 says, true commitment means initiative. It was Onesiphorus who sought out Paul, not the other way around. But then there's something else in verse 17 that we learn about this man of whom we know so little. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly. Because true commitment demands determination. It demands not making excuses, but by doing the work necessary to show your commitment. Now, you stay there at 2 Timothy. Let me go back to a passage in, in the book of Luke that you're probably familiar with. This is Luke 14, and it, it's, it's a great passage about making excuses. Right out of the Bible. Luke 14, if 
I can get this page to open, it'll be verse 15 I want to read from. Just stay where you are, let me read. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at that time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those whom he had invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. Now listen to this. This is... I find humor in the Bible where nobody else seems to find it. So watch this. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. (laughs) Who buys a field before they see it, right? So he says, I already purchased this piece of property in Florida. They said it's lakefront, so, you know, obviously it is. And, and I now have to go see the property I bought in Florida, and uh, please have me excused. That's excuse number one. Look at the next one. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. <laughs> I went down to Fast Freddy's used car lot. And I bought a 1957 Chevy. Oh, you ought to see the thing. I I understand there's an engine in it, too. And, and, you know, presumably, at least, there are four tires uh, on the car. I haven't seen it, but, oh, did I get it for a great price. Please have me excused. Now, what moron does that, you know? Oh, there's one more. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Well, that's it. No, you know, please have me excused or anything. I, I got married and life is over for me, so don't, you know, just let it ride. Excuses. I mean, we're really good at excuses, aren't we? All of us are really good at excuses. I, I ran into this just the other day because I've been cleaning out some of my old files and I have four file cabinets I need to get down to one, and uh, I've been looking at things I haven't seen in 30, 40 years sometimes. And I ran across this the other day, but I remember it from 30 years ago. This is from the Metropolitan Insurance Company. And, and these are some of the excuses their policyholders gave them for why they had an accident or whatever. These are real excuses that the Metropolitan Company received. Let me just do four of them quickly. An invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car, and vanished. That was an excuse. Second one. The telephone pole was approaching fast. I attempted to swerve out of its path when it struck my front end. A real excuse given to the Metropolitan Insurance Company. Number three, the pedestrian had no idea which way to go, so I ran over him. (laughs) Real excuses. My favorite. I pulled away from the curb, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. (laughs) Now look, (laughs) we really, as Christians have excuses that just probably won't stand up at the judgment seat of Christ, like these do not stand up for the Metropolitan Insurance Company. Let me go back to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16 as I close. 
He says, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me. True commitment demands consistency. And he was not ashamed of my chains, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me. True commitment demands initiative. He searched for me earnestly, not, not half-heartedly. Onesiphorus didn't show up at Rome and say, you know, I, I looked in a couple of prisons. I couldn't find Paul. I asked around. Nobody knew where he was. Now, remember, this is during the time of the Roman emperor whose name is Nero, right, when Paul's in prison. If he wasn't insane, he was crazy. But Paul was in prison in Rome during this time, probably in a house under arrest, but under arrest nonetheless. And Onesiphorus comes from Ephesus to find him, and it says, he earnestly searched for me. He didn't go back to Ephesus and say, you know what? There's a lot of prisons in Rome. There could be hundreds, thousands maybe. Because everybody was in prison during Nero's reign. And he could have gone back to Ephesus and said, I looked, I gave it the old college try. I, I looked at a couple of prisons. He wasn't there, so I just gave up and I came back home. That wasn't good enough for Onesiphorus, and it shouldn't be good enough for you and me. But I noticed this last thing he says He searched for me earnestly and found me. See, there's the bottom line, folks. Onesiphorus was not waiting to hear the Lord say, well tried. He was waiting to hear, well done. It's good to try. It's better to do. He searched for me and he found me. Onesiphorus would not give up until he had found the Apostle Paul. See, making foolproof of your ministry is not for quitters. It's not for part-time help. It's not for, for those who won't make a commitment to anything in the church. The real heroes of the world, the real ministers of the world, are not just Pastor Jim and his staff, but they're all of you. They're all of us. And while this man, Onesiphorus, reminds me so much of Pastor Jim and his commitment to you, the fact is, making foolproof of your ministry is important too. Ty Cobb, thrown out more times trying to steal base than any other ball player in history. Ty Cobb. Babe Ruth struck out more times than any other baseball player. Hank Aaron struck out more than 99% of the guys who have ever played baseball. More than 99% of them. Enrico Caruso, whose name many of you will not even remember because you're too young, but Enrico Caruso, his voice cracked so often that his teacher told him he ought to quit and not sing at all and became perhaps the greatest opera singer in the history of opera. Thomas Edison failed 14,000 times just to invent the incandescent light bulb. Ted Engstrom was the president of Youth for Christ when I was a teenager. 
I only met him one time. He was a large man. I mean, he was tall, he broad shoulders, and de- very soft heart. I just, I loved the man. He wrote a book, very insightful book, entitled Pursuit of Excellence. And this is what he said in the book. Cripple him, and you have Sir Walter Scott. Lock him in a prison, and you have John Bunyan. Bury him in the snows of Valley Forge, and you have George Washington. Raise him in abject poverty, and you have Abraham Lincoln. Strike him down with infantile paralysis, and he becomes Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Deafen him, and you have Ludwig von Beethoven. Raise him in a society filled with racism, and you have George Washington Carver, who taught us more about peanuts than Jimmy Carter ever did. Call him a slow learner, retarded. Write him off as uneducable, and you have Albert Einstein. See, this man Onesiphorus is, a, is an inspiration to me, like your pastor is an inspiration to you, because they don't quit when it gets hard. They don't quit when the times are tough. They don't quit when the criticism comes. And believe me, unless you've been in a position where Pastor Jim has been, you really don't know what criticism can be and how biting it can be. How horrible it can be. And yet, you somehow are consistent through it all. You're determined through it all. You take the initiative through it all. And you finish well. Pastor Jim, thank you. Lori, thank you. Your family, thank you. For being committed to this church for 20 years. And Lord, thank you for giving us Onesiphorus, a man that we know almost nothing about, but can teach us so much about what we need to be today. Will you pray with me, please? Father, we are grateful to you for your good gifts to us. Salvation is your gift, Lord. Giving us a spiritual gift is your gift to us, each of us. And while it may be a different gift for each of us, each one is equally important to you. Thank you, Father, for Pastor Jim and Lori, his family, the staff here at the church, and for each of these committed members and attenders at the church. We ask, Lord, your blessing on the next 20 years. Should you tarry and not come back for all of us, all who are ready to be taken by you, we pray for your blessing on this church for the next 20 years. And while someday Pastor Jim will pass the baton to someone else, we ask you to bless that person as you have blessed Pastor Jim in his ministry here. Thank you, Lord, for these dear people, for their love for you and for their love for their pastor. This we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.